Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And today we're going to discuss the anti, um, anti-slavery activism. And usually when we talk about that, we do from sort of a, a top-down perspective. We talk about the leaders of the movement, um, you know. But in this instance, I thought it would be interesting to kind of flip that and look at anti-slavery activism, even radical activism, through the eyes of a teenager. And so today, uh, we are speaking with Dr. Kristen Glasgow, who received her PhD uh, in history from UCLA just last year. And uh, she has researched uh, Charlotte Fortin extensively. So I am really excited to find out more about Charlotte Fortin and, uh, and about, yeah, this different view of anti-slavery activism in the 1850s and early 60s. So welcome, Kristen. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So I don't know a whole lot about Charlotte Fortin, but oddly enough, um, I do. I have studied her family since I focus on um, African-American women in the 1830s. And so I was um, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Fortin family from Philadelphia, just to, to kind of give us a starting point. Of course. Well, Charlotte Fortin was born in 1837. And by the time she was born, the Fortin family had already had a huge legacy, both in Philadelphia as well as the larger North, as a activist anti-slavery family, not only fighting to emancipate those enslaved in the South, but also fighting against the American Colonization Society, which was a movement in the country cloaked under religion that argued that People who were enslaved, if they were freed, might not be able to integrate, so to speak, into the larger national populace. So the argument for the American Colonization Society on paper was that, sure, let's let's free those enslaved and let's send them, quote, back to Africa which is where the the first idea of back to Africa came from. However, once the passage or the legislation went through, really what was happening with the American Colonization Society was not so much to free those enslaved in the South. That was going to be preserved. The American Colonization Society instead said, let's send those people who were free of color in the North, especially, back to Africa. And so Charlotte's family, James Fort and her grandfather, who was a wealthy sailmaker in Philadelphia, allied with many of his white friends and anti-slavery people and anti-American colonization society people and started what was called the quote, Negro conventions or the colored conventions that gathered many people across the North to say enough is enough. So Charlotte's Female family members, including Sarah Fortin, who I believe you work on, Susan, um, were all anti-slavery people, were fighting in the anti-slavery movements, literature, etc., to uplift the race and also to eradicate slavery. So by the time Charlotte Fortin was born in 1837... This is a very strange analogy, and you're not supposed to do this as a trained historian, but I liken her to John F. Kennedy Jr. She was already steeped in a legacy of wealth and familial recognition in society. However, unlike JFK Jr., um, by the time she was born, even though her family still had status, they didn't quite have the same wealth as they did when her parents were growing excuse me, her parents and her aunts, et cetera, were growing up. So I know that um, her mother, from what I understand, was born enslaved. 
but she died when uh, Charlotte was fairly young, like two or three years it, old. I, um, that's a bit of a, let me, sorry to interrupt. That's a bit of a conflation. And that is a, an idea that that is incorrect. Her birth mother, her maternal mother was mm-hmm. Mary Virginia Woods who mm-hmm. came from a free family of color who were highly educated and also activists in the anti-slavery movement. Mary Virginia Woods Fortin died when Charlotte was three years old. Robert, her father, ends up marrying, yes, a woman whose name is also Mary, Mary Hanscombe, who had formerly been enslaved in South Carolina um, and then came to the North through um, Robert Purvis, who was the married to Charlotte's aunt Harriet. And then the two ended up marrying and moving out to the country. So there are two Marys. And this is why you can't trust the internet. So does her father, does she grow up with him? Um, does she grow up with her grandparents? Um, how is she like kind of steeped in activism, I guess? Mm-hmm, wonderful question. So by the time uh, Charlotte is about... 10 years old, maybe nine or 10 years old. And her father, Robert, has now married Mary Hanscombe. And they move out to the countryside because Philadelphia was starting to get very attacked with race riot mobs, etc. And both her family's house was being attacked by race riots. Her uncle, Robert Purvis, and her aunt Harriet, their houses were being attacked. So they all decided to move out to the countryside, thinking that they would be safer. They also were all working on the Underground Railroad. And after the passage of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, all of the records that were being kept and all of the almost out in public idea of working on the Underground Railroad, as ironic as that sounds, had to go intentionally even more underground. And because there was a lot of uh, attacks going on, they decided to move out to the country. So Charlotte's in her early teens and she moves out. Her father, Robert and Mary have two other children. And the idea was where was she going to now be educated? Her family had a rich tradition of being highly educated. So the idea was that Charlotte would continue in that tradition. So the question historically is part of the reason why I did this dissertation was the idea has always been that Charlotte at the age of 15 was sent to Salem, Massachusetts to live with her family friends, Charles Lennox Ramond and Amy Matilda Cassie Ramond. We can talk about that in a little bit. But the idea has always been that she moved there because there was no education accessible to her at her status in Philadelphia. However, the research doesn't bear that out. First of all, her grandmother, Charlotte Sr., was highly educated. That sh- The grandmother was still living in Philadelphia in the Fortin House. Her aunt Margareta was highly educated and a school teacher and a private tutor. So the question would be, why wouldn't Margareta educate her. There were also some really wonderful private elite schools for children of color in Philadelphia during this time. So that that doesn't bear out that she left the city because there was nothing available to her in terms of education. So would it mean that it was just that she got an integrated education in Salem then? It wasn't even that. What my research bears out is that they more than likely sent her to Salem to get away from the potential of her either 
being kidnapped or having race attacks on her because it would have only been her grandmother and her aunt in the, in the house in Philadelphia. So not a lot of protection. She was not going to get the education in the countryside. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to not only steep her in an intellectual education, um, but also how was she going to be trained as a radical anti-slavery activist? And so they sent her to Salem, Massachusetts to live with Charles Lennox Ramon, who at the time was a larger orator in the anti-slavery movement than Frederick Douglass and his wife, Amy Matilda Cassie Ramon, who had once lived in Philadelphia mm -hmm. was considered another anti-slavery activist. She was one of the first uh, females of color in Salem to integrate the Salem anti-slavery society, et cetera. So Charlotte went there to Salem at the age of 15 and started her education there so that she could be safe and get the best education possible. So um, I know Philadelphia was, was dangerous in um, the 1830s with riots, the big 1842 riot that, that pushed um, Robert Purvis out of, out of Philadelphia and in the countryside. But the, so you're suggesting that all of this continues well into the 1850s. And so- definitely despite its sort of reputation of being a abolitionist stronghold, Philadelphia isn't a safe place for people of color at this time, right? Exactly. Because the idea is Philadelphia was one of the first stops on the Underground Railroad after you got out of the South. And so that became a hub, so to speak, of where, and so therefore, people were really starting to pay attention to that as in people who were supportive of the 1850 fugitive slave law, which meant returning any person of color fugitive was supposed to be the key word back to their quote unquote rightful owners. But at that point, kidnapping of free people of color. Now I realize we're talking after 1850, but if you know the movie 12 Years a Slave, the story of Solomon Northrup, he was certainly not the only one. There are records. We have thousands and thousands of those stories of free people of color being kidnapped and taken to the South. So yes, even though Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love and the hub of all of this activism, remember that Charlotte and her family at this point had moved out to the, to the countryside for safety, but also to continue their activism. They would have been too uh, focused. The, the lens would have been on them too much had they stayed in Philadelphia because everybody had already known what they were doing previously in terms of advocating and being activists and helping fugitives escape. So basically all of that wealth, and I, and I realize it's dissipated some by the by the 1850s, but you know, you have the wealth, you have the fame, um, you know, all of this, and that's still not enough to to make Philadelphia safe for Charlotte. Not at all, and especially being a beautiful young woman of color. So there was a lot of kidnapping going on, not just in terms of potentially relocating her to the south. But also, you know, somebody's concubine that was going on as well. There were kidnappings happening in, in many different ways. And she was more than likely too vulnerable to, in terms of, you know, soci socially, politically, and her gender at the time. Okay. So um, from what I know about the Fortin family um, and the Ramones, Ramones um, they were both Garrisonian abolitionists. I know. James Fortin was an agent for the Liberator when it started, and uh, and they they certainly uh, that's that's kind of the philosophy that they endorse. I was wondering if you could take a minute or so and sort of tell us a bit about what did it mean to be a Garrisonian 
abolitionist. And, um, you know, how is that different from other forms of anti-slavery activism? Sure. Well, the first word that comes to mind whenever I think of Garrisonian politics, anti-slavery politics is radical. And that is the word that Charlotte Fortin used. That is the word that all of Garrisonian followers used. You are a radical abolitionist. That meant you take action. You do not wait for laws or legislation to pass. And the way, I mean, it was a fierce radicalism. And in terms of Garrison's paper, The Liberator, if you look at the motto, the masthead, it was, you know, basically undo the Constitution by having a covenant with the Constitution. You're allying with slavery. And they basically felt that if you were part of the Constitution, you supported slavery. Therefore, at every moment, you had to undo it. There's early on in Charlotte's diary, she starts again, she starts keeping her diary at the age of 15. And a lot of people have looked at her diary and thought, oh, isn't that sweet? It's a teenage girl take, you know, keeping her stories. And she does open up the pages and say, I'm keeping this journal to remember my time here and my friends and what I've learned and keep a record of it. But of course, when you're surrounded and grew up with fame and radical abolitionists around you, you don't necessarily refer to them that way. Those are your friends and your family. And if you read the pages, if you look at why she started her diary on May 24th, 1854, it's because it was the arrest of Anthony Burns in Boston, who was a fugitive slave. And there is, that's, to me, that's not a coincidence. She opens it up and says, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. This poor man, this fugitive has been kidnapped. All of my radical Garrisonian anti-slavery people, she says, you know, in her own way, are there trying to help him. So her diary is filled with the most incredible activism if you read it that way. If you don't read it like a teenager talking about the beautiful flowers that she's smelling. I mean, of course, there's that as well. But there's also her talking about the, quote, surprise parties that stop by the Ramones house. And my research shows those are the fugitives that they're helping escape. So, you know, and the, the fact that she would put that in a journal, I mean, I take it so far to say, she is literally, by by calling it a diary, was able to capture the movements of the Underground Railroad where other literature had to be destroyed because at a certain point it became too dangerous. You know, Robert Purvis, for example, had to destroy his wealth of information about the Underground Railroad for fear of either being fined or jailed, etc., so the fact that Charlotte Fortin's diary remains and in a way was, you know, kind of under the radar, that too was radical. So going back to your question about Garrisonian anti-slavery, um, it basically um, is very different than what Frederick Douglass and more of the New York anti-slavery people ended up coming to. Frederick Douglass originally was a Garrisonian. And he eventually split from them because the New York tap inside of the anti-slavery movement said, let's work with the constitution. It tells you how to undo slavery. Whereas the Garrisonian anti-slavery people said right here, right now, undo it. If not, this is a unconstitutional country and the sins of slavery are going to ruin it. You know, just listening to you talk about the diary, it makes me think, God, I wish there were a dozen of those. I mean, you know, that's the the one thing I, you know, I'm sure there are other diaries and no one bothered to save them. I'm sure there are diaries that were destroyed. Um, But, but to be able to kind of get the inside thought uh, makes such a difference in how we understand all of this. So, I mean, what kind of things does she write that make her seem like just a regular teenager 
with sort of the side gig of being an activist? Uh, Well, I would actually reverse that. I would say she was a full-time activist. She rarely allowed herself to be a normal teenager. And her diaries are just filled with so much pain whenever she was a normal teenager. She would berate herself and just beat herself up and say, how dare I? How dare I when people are enslaved? How dare I ever take a moment for myself? And of course, she was a typical teenager. She was going through emotions and crushes and all those wonderful things. But she was also a free teenager of color. And even though Salem was welcoming to her, she was the first to integrate her grammar school. She was the first to integrate the normal school. And she writes of just the pain of going to school as the only uh, child of color And her white classmates were so kind to her in school. And then she would see them in the street and they would ignore her. Mm. So there was really no normalcy for her. And and where she did find solace and normalcy was with her anti-slavery friends and family in Salem and going to anti-slavery fairs and sewing for the Boston Bazaar so they could raise money to help those escaping. I mean, so... It's a very, it's when you get to the the realization reading her diary of how much pain is expressed in it. And all she just wanted to do was be accepted and have people free. She couldn't understand why that was not possible. It, it's, it's incredibly hard to read. And it sounds so much of um, like what her aunt Sarah writes in the 1830s when she first starts getting involved with the anti-slavery movement and writing about the racism within the movement and being ignored, you know, in public, um, but in private, people are kind. And so, yeah, that's shocking to to read, to know 20 years later, you know, the movement hasn't necessarily changed as much as, as you would hope, as you would um, want. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's interesting because her aunt Sarah, she, Charlotte and Sarah have so much in common. Um, Sarah was published at the age of 17 in The Liberator. She started to become a well-known poet. Uh, John Greenleaf Whittier writes about her and her sisters. Well, Charlotte also gets published at the age of 17 in The Liberator. She too starts to write poetry. But unlike Sarah, who is, and I do not mean to at all diminish what Sarah went through, but Sarah was recognized and seen as this incredible talent. For Charlotte, Charlotte was just agonized over having to fill those shoes. Mm. She always felt she was going to fall below the talent of her aunt or be ridiculed or whatever it was. She just never felt good enough. She would always preface her in her diary about writing her poetry. You know, she called it dog roll or drivel or, you know, I'm embarrassed anybody would want to publish it. So it, it, yeah, but they had, they did have a lot in common and it did persist. It did not diminish by the time Charlotte was a teenager in the 1850s. So she comes to, comes of age um, at the beginning of the civil war. And, and so as a committed activist, what does she, what does she do um, at this sort of pivotal moment? So she was in Salem still. She was now teaching at the normal school. She actually gave that up for a while. She decided to go back to Philadelphia to the country. She lived with her Aunt Harriet and Robert Purvis. She tutored their children. She took a respite. She doesn't quite put it that way, but there's a, about a year where she is not doing anything, inc- you know, incredibly activist. She doesn't say why, but she decides to return to Salem and teach again at the normal school. And after about a few months, this is in 1862, 
she hears that the emancipation, excuse me, the emancipation proclamation, Lincoln's emancipation proclamation is going to be upcoming in the beginning of 1863. So she writes to Whittier, John Greenleaf Whittier, and says, what can I do? He suggests she go to the South Carolina Sea Islands to help educate the formerly enslaved people so that when they get liberated, they will be welcomed into the American society, she hoped and believed. And so Whittier puts forth his recommendation. She packs up and goes to South Carolina and is my dissertation advisor, Brenda Stevenson, who wrote Charlotte's Journals, likes to say she went wild. She loved it there. She finally got to put all of her activism to use. She got to educate for a cause. I mean, talk about coming together. She's educating those who were formerly enslaved. Those that's the most incredible bookend or you know bridging she could have ever hoped for. And so she goes there, she educates them, she works alongside Laura Town, I believe is her name, Laura Town. And um then it, during her diary there's a wonderful moment where she goes to Beaumont to see Harriet Tubman and say hello to her. Now, the way she words it is so interesting because she says, it was so great to meet her. However, Charlotte, you could interpret that as, as in having never met her before. But I did a bunch of linguistic research on Charlotte, and she uses that expression, meet you, even if she had already met you. It was good to meet you. So what I found out is that Harriet Tubman and Robert Purvis, her uncle in Philadelphia, had often worked together on the Underground Railroad. So Charlotte may not have actually ever met her in person as a child when that was going on, but so meeting her in, in Beaumont was quite a thrill for her. So what happens to her after the Civil War? I mean, what's the, the rest of her life like? The rest of her life, she she goes to Washington, D.C. She starts working for the Freedmen's Bureau and educating there as well. She marries Francis Grimke, who is the half-brother of the Grimke sisters. He is a reverend, and he is about 20 years her junior. She becomes a devoted wife and church wife. They go to Florida for a little while where he preaches down there. They come back to DC and she lives out her life with him quietly, but also being an activist under kind of under the radar. And she is friends with or is befriended by Anna Julia Cooper, who is about 20 years also her junior. Um, and Anna Julia Cooper takes on Charlotte Fortin Grimke's now story and starts to write her biography. The, the paper is still there at Howard University. And Charlotte Fortin lives out her years till about 1914. She dies. It's an incredibly long life, 1837 to 1914, right as World War I is starting. Hmm. Well, one of the things that I ask everyone we interview is to, you know, to kind of get us thinking about people in a more 21st century way is that, you know, imagine if Charlotte had an Instagram account in 1860, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever, what kinds of hashtags might she use to describe herself or her situation? I'm not sure if you're familiar with friendship albums or if your students are familiar with friendship albums. And the idea was that you would have your friends write a poem or draw a piece of, you know, a flower or something in them so that you could have keepsakes of your friends. 
and the and the friendship albums that she and others kept i'm not sure were hers if she did keep one her diary to me is like a friendship album but these were anti-slavery friendship albums so that it would look like a poem or a flower or whatever but there was a huge political message underneath so charlotte forden if she had an instagram she would have let's say a beautiful daffodil, a picture of it. And it would say hashtag sins of slavery. (laughs) So it would be where, you know, or it would be an image of something that you wouldn't quite know what it was, or it would be a quote from Whittier. And she might say, you know, hashtag ways of Whittier. Whittier was a radical abolitionist. So that's what she'd be nodding to. Or she would put up a picture of, as she would call him, her beloved William Lloyd Garrison and do hashtag Garrison's girl. So this is how I think she would weave in. It would be pictures of flowers that were political. It would be quotes of poets who were anti-slavery. And probably it would be definitely flora and fauna more than anything else. But that would all, again, be political nods to Garrison. All right. I, um, I've been lucky enough to see three of the friendship albums that are in Philadelphia. I've never made it to Howard to see the fourth one. Um, but you're right. They're they're radical in their very domestic kind of uh, cloaked in in this sort of female world with the flowers and and the drawings and the the poetry. But underlying it all is uh, a real sense of radicalism. And, and well, it- I, I remember just looking at them at first and also seeing. Oh my gosh, I can't believe blank has signed this. So are you know the very exactly. famous people. And so that's where you get the idea that, well, this is more than just uh, a scrapbook. Yes. And especially in the case of Amy Matilda Ramon's friendship album, it's signed by men and women. And in there, it is all anti-slavery rhetoric, all of it, including even the poems that are selected, because only the poetry of those who were aligned with anti-slavery were read. You rejected those who were not a part of the anti-slavery movement. So yes, they are radical indeed. I hope you get to see the one at Howard. Yeah, if I ever get to travel again. I, <laughs> right, exactly. I was planning to uh, do that when I went to the Berks this summer. And, uh, and so that didn't happen. But anyway, I do want to thank you so much. Um, thank you for me. having me. I feel like uh, I've been kind of a fangirl over the, the Fortins and uh, being able me to find too. out a lot more about Charlotte is has been fantastic. And so uh, if your students have any questions about her, please feel free to let them be in contact with me. I love I talking about her. I, I love hearing about her. So thank you for sharing this. And I'm, I'm looking forward to including it as part of uh, what we listen to uh, as uh, course materials. So, Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Sue.